Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the LSE for those of you who are not uh, residents here, which must be uh, quite a few since, of course, we're not in term time at the moment. But we couldn't resist, even though this is normally a bit of downtime for the school, we couldn't resist having Steve Ratner to come and speak to us. Uh, Steve is, as the slide says, Managing Principal of the uh, Quadrangle Group, which is uh, private equity operation, uh, or at least it was, because actually a man called Steve Ratner wrote an op-ed in the Financial Times last week saying that private equity was completely over. Um, <laughs> so uh, he may be telling us this evening what he's going to branch out into next. Um, but uh, he has had a fascinating career in New York, uh, beginning on the New York Times uh, as a journalist for a number of years, but then decided to get a respectable job. Um, and <laughs> went uh, into investment banking uh, with uh, Morgan Stanley and, and then with uh, Lazard Brothers um, and then branched out from Lazard with a couple of colleagues to set up his own operation to invest in mainly in media and telecommunications companies, which he has done with outstanding success. Uh, for many years. Steve has, however, another reason for being here, uh, which is that he has a slightly loose-ish connection with the uh, LSE, I might say, in that when he was here, when he was a journalist in London uh, in the 80s, he did attend some classes here. But if I'm right, Steve, that never quite crystallised into anything you might call a degree. Um, but um, he was here uh, from time to time uh, during that period, uh, but is managed, married to someone who was here uh, in a more substantial way uh, and actually did classes and took exams and all of that stuff. Uh, so we can count you a sort of halfway uh, alumnus, uh, I think, uh, which is good enough. Um, we're going to hear tonight uh, on the credit crunch and the US economy. Steve's going to show us a few slides about that uh, and then he and I may discuss it for a moment or two, and we'll throw it open to you. So very pleased to welcome you here. Thank you. Thanks very much, Howard. Howard, um, uh, I, I actually, my relationship to the LSE is even more complicated than you described it as, and I, but I won't take my time on it today. The only thing I will say is that, uh, as you point out, my wife is a graduate. I'm not. And so her question is, why am I standing up here and not her? <laughs> um, on my way in here, I was given uh, something from the World Socialist website called Shades of 1929, Bear Stearns Collapse Signals, Deepest Crisis Since the Great Depression. And um, with apologies, I think I'm going to take a somewhat different point of view. Uh, and so I, what I'm going to do is just run through, as Howard said, a few slides, really, uh, in the old uh, saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. And then uh, we can have a discussion and go from there. So uh, assuming the technology works. So just to go back and really begin in uh, March of 2000, when, as everybody knows, uh, stock market indices peaked in the U.S. and, for that matter, all around the world. We then went into the dot-com meltdown and a recession in the United States, uh, which inflicted quite a good bit of damage. Uh, the recession began in the spring of 2001. Unemployment got to 5.5%. We lost 1.6 million jobs by the time all was said and done. And we had a rather dramatic fall in the equity markets 
uh, 49% for the S&P and 78% for the NASDAQ. And I, I go through some of this history uh, really to put, the, put this in the context of what we're looking at today. Uh, we also had a huge number of bankruptcies that were really double the 20-year average up to over 8% of outstanding debt. And uh, as we know, it proved somewhat short-lived. We had massive uh, stimulus from the Bush tax cuts, and we had uh, reductions in, by the Federal Reserve in its interest rates all the way from 5%, uh, 6% down to 1%, some of that actually coming even after the, the recession was over, although we didn't know it at the time. And then we went into a golden age, uh, as I will call it here, uh, not just for private equity, but for, for the economy, more importantly. And so we basically had five years of uh, steady growth and very respectable 2.6% increase in GDP, all in, a, again, a very benign and happy environment, 3% rate of growth of productivity, uh, falling the unemployment rate back down to 4.4%, which is quite a low rate for us, uh, very modest inflation, and robust growth in consumer spending. Some people would say uh, too robust. Uh, we can talk about that and the, and the uh, savings implications, but nonetheless, certainly much was consumed in America during this period. And within the financial world, uh, stock prices began uh, a very steady rise from 800 on the S&P in March 2003. We went all the way up and got to uh, 1565 on the S&P, which represents a 15.7% growth rate, you know, about as good as anybody could imagine life being. Um, on the sort of credit side of the equation, borrowers were, were huge beneficiaries. And if you look at the uh, high-yield index and the spread uh, that high-yield bonds on average traded relative to treasuries, we went from 900 basis points, i.e. 9 percentage points, over treasuries all the way down at its low point to 269 basis points, not only a low point for the cycle, but actually an all-time low and well below a 20-year uh, average of 542 basis points. So you had a, a truly golden age in the, uh, in the capital markets. And that, of course, uh, fueled a very rapid uh, growth in lending. And so you can see that uh, over these five years, while not every year was consistently up, we went up, at a, uh, we went up to dramatic heights. And the 07 number uh, would have been even much, much higher, but for the credit crunch that we're all now familiar with. Uh, taking hold uh, last summer. Uh, one of the principal reasons why lenders were so happy to lend was because they perceived that the risks of lending were going down, uh, had gone down very dramatically. Uh, this is a chart of the default rate, uh, what percentage of high-yield bonds default, and you can see down in 07, it reached this trivial number where we literally only had 10 companies, $3 billion dollars, of debt defaulting, uh, the lowest by uh, number since 1981 and by dollar volume since 1994. So there was this uh, loss of a sense of risk, loss of a sense that one could lose money, and so more money uh, got lent to more people. And to put this in a private equity uh, context, because one of the things Howard said to me when he asked me to come and talk was that there at least was a few months ago interest in private equity. Uh, to put this in a, in a private, and the business is not quite over yet, uh, put, to put this in a private equity Context, all this liquidity um, uh, provoked an enormous uh, boom in the buyout market. So the left-hand side of the chart uh, is this high-yield issuance that we talked about, and the red bar at the bottom is the lower-rated part of high-yield, so the highest yielding of the highest yielding, if you will, and you can see the extent to which 
those red bar, that red bar on the left side grew as well, meaning that there was more lower rated debt being issued. And the line uh, that goes up to 35% shows you what percent that is of the total. And so there was a lot of uh, very leveraged uh, borrowing that went on. And the right side is global uh, M&A volume. And again, in this context, the red bars refer to LBO volume. And the line shows you what percent of total deals um, ended up be, be, uh, be, were part of the LBO boom. And so you can see that it went from roughly 5% around the turn of the millennium up to 20% uh, in 07. So private equity uh, truly had uh, its golden age. And I think no discussion of the last five years would be complete without some reference to housing. And while I know there's been housing price expansion here and for that matter across Europe, uh, in the U.S., you can see we had this dramatic decoupling of housing prices from uh, household incomes, which they had tracked quite closely over a long period of time. And then most recently, we've had a downturn in the numbers that were just reported in the last few days, uh, the so-called Case-Shiller Index, which measures housing prices in the 20 biggest markets in the U.S. We have a 10.7% uh, year-over-year decline, January of 08 relative to January of 07, and 2.4%. Uh, just for, uh, in January, just relative to the previous December. And as I'm sure you all know, there are many uh, forecasts out there for what might happen next. So we went into the age of uh, what I'll call the age of uh, turmoil for the purpose of, of this discussion. And it began, of course, with the uh, unwinding of the subprime situation, um, which followed, was followed very quickly by a near paralysis in the high-yield corporate credit market as well, uh, where rising supply uh, really did overwhelm demand, and I'll show you some figures on that in a second. This is kind of more of a summary, and then we'll get into a little bit more detail on this. And then again, to oversimplify and just to uh, glide across the surface for a minute, during the fall, uh, this moved into the real economy, and you started to have job losses uh, in housing sectors and financial sectors. You started to have pullback in consumer spending as a result of the falling home prices and just general nervousness about our economic prospects. And people began to talk about uh, recession. And uh, there are many, many calculations of the odds of recession. One that I happen to like being a creature of the markets uh, is the online betting market. And if you go on to in-trade today, it will tell you the odds of recession are uh, 70%. And if you look at the credit markets, another market that one likes to look at, um, the odds are even higher. And I'll show you that in just a second. So there's no shortage of uh, indicators that one can find to suggest that we're either at or in uh, a recession. But just to tick off a few of them for you, um, in the fourth quarter, uh, our real GDP grew at 0.6%. And then we, had a, we have a series of revisions as these numbers come out. And while economists expected it to be revised upward, it wasn't. Um, and it, this is the weakest GDP growth in five years for our economy. And more importantly, if you think about sort of trend lines, when you have an economy that was clearly decelerating uh, from the third quarter to the fourth quarter, it means that you're starting the first quarter uh, at a lower point, And the probability of the first quarter uh, being very slow or potentially negative uh, goes up. Uh, we've had the unemployment rate go up. Um, Modestly so far, uh, you probably wouldn't know it or think it by what you read in the newspapers, which are somewhat more anxious, but, uh, but nonetheless, it has gone up meaningfully. Uh, jobless claims, which is a uh, figure that we track that gives us a bit of a leading indicator for what's happening with employment, uh, have risen from under 300,000, which is a, a uh, prosperous kind of number, to now 360,000. We've had job losses in the first uh, two months of this year, January and February, 
uh, totaling about 80-some-odd thousand jobs, and so there is clearly a weak employment situation. Um, one probably doesn't need to say much more about housing, but uh, virtually every housing statistic is very weak. Uh, new home construction is one. We just reported this week um, the lowest new home sales in a month in 13 years, uh, down uh, 30% in just a year in terms of the number of new home sales. The Institute for Supply Management, which measures uh, separately the manufacturing and the non-manufacturing sectors and where reading above 50 is generally at least positive and the higher the better, of course, has now been essentially below 50 continuously since December, which in the past has uh, always signaled uh, a recession. And we just had a uh, conference board consumer index uh, report in which the index dropped uh, 11, 12 points in one month uh, and is now down at the same level it was at during the recession of 02. And we've had declines in retail sales. We had a uh, disappointing durable goods number uh, earlier this week as well. And so a lot of indicators that are reasonably negative and not a lot of positive news. I mentioned before that the credit markets uh, provide another indicator of where we are in the economic cycle. This is an index of the investment grade companies. I, these are the companies that are rated above, triple B and above. And so these are, uh, in principle, our strongest companies financially, um, our strongest companies financially. And you can see that the shaded bars are the, each of the last two recessions that I mentioned. You can see the long-term average of 73 basis points over treasuries, which is what you expect from companies that generally don't go bankrupt. And you can see that we actually got uh, on St. Patrick's Day as high as 190 basis points. It's since come down to about 140 basis points. You know, markets are very volatile. But certainly the spike upward in the investment grade index is something we have only seen in periods of very weak uh, economic activity. There may be some reasons why uh, this, spikes, this volatility and these spikes are particularly pronounced in this cycle, which we can talk about, but nonetheless uh, very hard to see this as anything other than a, a negative signal. Um, the equity markets are, uh, are more ambiguous in terms of what they're telling us at the moment uh, or what we should think about where they might be going. We have had a significant drop in the S&P index, 15% from its peak and 10% since the 1st of January. But unlike the uh, 2000 period, the so-called dot-com era, where the S&P got up to around 30 times, Earnings, it's currently only trading at 16 times earnings, which is below its 20-year average of, of 19 times. And you can see that, in fact, um, even as stock prices were rising for most of that of the last five years, as I showed you on an earlier chart, in fact, the average stock price multiple was coming down because earnings were growing quite quickly. So the notion that we are back in a uh, 2000 bubble with respect to the equity markets is, uh, is less obvious. And another way to look at that is what is called the Fed model, in which one compares the yield on uh, stocks, uh, the S&P index in this case, to the yield on treasuries, with the notion that when stocks are yielding more than treasuries, that's actually bullish for the market, because if you can earn more, a higher yield in dividends, plus uh, one hopes price appreciation, then uh, that's, that's a pretty attractive investment proposition relative to treasuries. And so you can see that this, this index uh, pretty accurately predicted the turn in the market early, earlier in this time period. And really, since 2002, has been send, sending this um, bullish signal. And in fact, at the moment, the, the spread between the gray line and the red line are as wide as it is anywhere in this time period. And so for what it's worth, that is a, a positive indicator for the equity markets. 
Now, I mentioned before that um, when the music stopped, so to speak, in the housing market, it also stopped in the high-yield market. And we had, in, in a sense, a perfect storm because we not only had the irrational exuberance, uh, to coin a phrase, in the housing market, we also had a form of it going on in the uh, high-yield or corporate debt market. And I showed you some of those figures about how much lending had gone on. But when the music stopped, um, the banks and investment banks had made huge forward commitments for private equity deals and LBOs that had not yet closed, basically $300 billion of uh, unfunded commitments that related to deals that were meant to close over ensuing months. And some of them still to this moment have not yet closed just because of the normal long delays, particularly in heavily regulated uh, industries. And so the banks have had to uh, deal with this. And this has put huge downward pressure on the credit markets. And you can see that on the left side are loans uh, and on the right side are bonds, but basically both uh, the two components of a private equity capital structure, loans being the more senior, the high yield being the more junior. And you can see that since the summer when we had this immense backlog of over $300 billion, it has been whittled down by a mix of some deals getting completed and some deals getting canceled. But one should note that the backlog still remains very large at this moment and is a significant overhang on the market and has certainly led to uh, the next phenomenon I want to describe, which is the pace of recent private equity activity. And uh, this one, I think this picture probably does tell most of the story, but you can see this enormous amount of private equity uh, activity building to this crescendo, if you will, in um, May and June of last year, and then tailing off in July and literally disappearing. Uh, there has not been one deal over $4 billion since July, and, the, and only $49 billion of deals larger than a $1 billion, which is actually half of what was done in the month of June alone last year. So it is very dry times uh, in the private equity business, particularly for the large deals. And, Howard, we will stay in business because we do smaller deals, and so we can still... <laughs> Uh, we still can keep ourselves profitably engaged. But one should not doubt the extent to which activity has decelerated. And you can see that again here in 08 in a sort of magnified fashion, the left side being um, new high-yield offerings uh, almost disappearing. And you can see M&A volumes dropping very significantly. The gray bar, which is not LBO volume but corporate activity, has dropped. But the Red bar, which is private equity activity, has dropped by a much, much larger percentage, uh, really almost uh, down toward the, the zero line. And uh, credit market spreads in the high yield market have returned to uh, at or above normal, and we can discuss what normal is. But you'll recall the slide at the beginning showing how they literally went from 1,100 basis points at the peak uh, uh, of the recession, really, <coughs> in the 01 period all the way down to 269 basis points. So this really takes that story and brings it forward. And so what we had was a, a period of decline down to the 269 figure, which you see again there. And then really since the summer, we've had uh, partly because of what's happened in housing, partly because of this overhang in supply, and then as those build on, built on each other and you entered this, this period of recessionary fear, a dramatic move upward in uh, this spread to 820 basis points roughly at the moment. Um, I would say again, as I think I said, that in each of the last two recessions, this got over 1,100 basis points. Um, so it may well be that given what is going on today, that this is not yet uh, a big enough spread relative to the risks and weakness in the economy, the overhang of supply, and so forth. And one of the things that is overhanging the debt markets um, 
is unfortunately what happened in private equity over the last several years. So to look at the chart at the bottom, this is the amount of debt relative to cash flow in uh, the average, taking all the LBO transactions in a given year and averaging it. And you can see that in the late 90s, which was, again, a period where of perhaps exuberance that was followed by recession and so forth, we got up to six and a half times debt to cash flow. And then at the bottom, down about 4.7. And you can see in 07, we, went, uh, we were all the way back up at 6.5. So in a sense, what this is saying is that uh, the, the deals that were done in the 07 time frame were as risky as any that have ever been done um, when one looks at the amount of leverage relative to the cash flows available to service that debt. And um, Moody's, S&P uh, have both, as well as many, many other people, begun to comment on some specific deals uh, as well as the overall risk that these deals uh, were, as we say in our business, priced to perfection in a, in a world of that 2.6% kind of GDP growth rate that we were talking about. And uh, even if they could have worked in a perfect world, how are they going to work in a world uh, with um, far slower growth or perhaps even a recession? Um, switch gears for a little bit, and I was going to just try to touch on a bunch of these different subjects and then, and then have this discussion. Uh, I, 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 you know, one cannot ignore Bear Stearns or what did happen in the financial market, what has been happening in the financial markets. And, what I thought was interesting to show you is Bear Stearns, I think everybody knows the stock was at $160 uh, just a bit, I think about a year ago. And we all know the original deal with J.P. Morgan was at $2. It's now been bumped to $10. But I'm not sure whether everybody appreciates is how close we came to really having a systemic failure. And uh, Lehman Bro I put Lehman Brothers up here because it was viewed as the firm next most in danger of the so-called run on the bank. And so this is, a, this is a very granular chart showing its trading levels throughout these uh, very few number of days. And you can see that the stock price literally went down by more than half for a brief moment, just about the time that Bear Stearns uh, went down almost to zero. And then through a for a variety of reasons, the Fed actions and things like that, it came back up. Um, but So one should not really underestimate um, the extent to which I think the financial system is very fragile, and even though I think you'll hear from me perhaps a generally more optimistic or positive uh, view of the U.S. situation than perhaps certainly from the people who handed out this leaflet, but perhaps from others as well, um, I do want to acknowledge that there are a lot of issues in that area, and we should certainly talk about them during the discussion. And similarly, there has been an enormous amount of volatility, which is very unnerving and destabilizing, except to people who make their living off of volatility. But looking at the so-called VIX index, which measures volatility, you can see um, that the volatility has really, really spiked upward last summer. And, it, and the volatility itself has been volatile, which is even more unnerving, I guess. Um, the other thing that has received a fair amount of attention, and again, I'll sort of put this out for discussion later to the extent people want to, is the so-called unwinding of leverage. Certainly, the system is deleveraging. Um, people have read about KKR Financial and Carlisle Capital, two very well-known name, Solwood Capital uh, in this market, a well-known name, and really what happens when the market suddenly delivers and everybody is in effect trying to call their loans, many of which are short-term and are secured by long-term assets and, and the dangers and effect of lending short and, um, uh, sorry, of, of lending short and borrowing and owning a long-term asset. Um, this unwinding was particularly pronounced in the asset-backed commercial paper market, and you can see that it, how far down that dropped but even in the overall commercial paper market, the shortest term way of borrowing, uh, there has been a dramatic unwinding of leverage. So where do we go from here? Um, 
Back in July of 07, this is what the consensus economic forecast for the U.S. for 2008 would have looked like. That, you know, that 2.8% growth, quarter in, quarter out, everything sort of seemed pretty, pretty good. Um, and then by September, uh, economists had dropped their forecasts, and of course things continued to unwind, and they dropped them some more. And if you look today, you can see that in fact the consensus of economic forecasts now do have the famous two quarters of negative growth in their forecasts uh, for the for the U.S. economy. Neither the Federal Reserve nor the administration have yet uh, put that into their forecasts, which I don't entirely fault them for because I think it is important for them to maintain a sense of confidence. But certainly if you look at the private forecasting community, uh, the preponderance of the evidence and the um, estimates are in the direction of recession. So I said that I was not going to be uh, at the gloomy end of the spectrum, so let me let me argue for a minute about why I don't think the world is ending. Um, first, I think the probability is that we are in a recession, but that it will be short and shallow. And I think one has to recognize that in the U.S. Uh, and in the U.K. and, uh, and uh, virtually all of the developed world, economic policymaking has gotten much more sophisticated over the last two decades. We have had only those two in the U.S., two recessions, eight months each in 20 years. Uh, I saw an interesting statistic the other day that in the U.S. from 1855 until the end of World War II, so that's 90 years, the U.S. was in recession 42% of the time. But in the time since 1945, the 60 years or so since 1945, we've only been in recession 16% of the time and even less in these last 20 years when we won't only in recession 16 months. So I do think economic policy has become much more sophisticated and much more effective. And as I said, the last two recessions were relatively mild. Um, I personally believe uh, that the U.S. economy is incredibly flexible and, product and productive. Uh, inflationary seems, inflation seems to be under control. Our most recent reading of the CPI in February was zero, both on the core number and the headline number. Uh, there are some other indicators that are a little more worrisome, but at the moment it appears that the Federal Reserve has the uh, scope to continue to reduce interest rates as it has. And although there is some skepticism about the interest rate reductions and their effectiveness and equal skepticism about the stimulus package that was enacted uh, a few months ago, I personally believe that inevitably these things take effect with a lag, and I think both of them, both sets of policies have been very thoughtful and will play a very constructive role in bringing us out of any recession that we may be in. Um, there's much wringing of, of hands uh, in the U.S., and I'm sure here for the opposite reason about the state of the U.S. dollar, and one should not lose sight of the effect of the U.S. The fall in the dollar on our export competitiveness. Exports are up roughly 20% year over year at the moment, and that is an enormous source of replacement demand, if you will, for the demand that's not going to come from within the U.S. economy. And I believe, although, again, uh, reasonable people can certainly disagree, and I certainly recognize the possibility, not probability, but the possibility of a black hole or of a Bear Stearns type event really mushrooming out of control, um, if I were betting, my own view of the probabilities are that we will work through this period of time just as we've worked through the post-dot-com period, just as we worked through our SNL problems in the late 80s, uh, and that we will, in fact, emerge uh, with a stronger uh, economy and a stronger financial system um, out the other side. So with that, I will put our logo up there instead of yours and, um, <laughs> and close for now. Thank you.
Well, you've thrown a, a huge amount of uh, information and food for thought at us, and I will open it to questions in, in a moment or two. But let me just ask a, a couple of uh, questions about, first of all, about the, the run-up to this crisis, and then uh, also about one or two of the consequences we might see. Two of the charts you've shown are particularly striking. The house price uh, index and its massive deviation from a long-term average. And also the high yield spread index and its massive deviation from a long-term average. Both of those, with the benefit of hindsight, certainly, but in fact there were also people at the time saying, this can't go on. How was it then that those trends were able to persist for really quite a substantial period and came to a crash uh, in a rather dramatic way? And why were there not, in these very sophisticated markets where people can take positions of all sorts and risk is supposed to be, be being able to be distributed to those best able to bear it and everybody can go short, etc., why were there not more people and more corrections in the market to prevent those trends getting so far out of line? Well, I don't want to come across as a name dropper, but I was having this very discussion with the governor of the Bank of England just before I came over here, and he asked the same question. Or, um, and I'm not sure he knows the answer. Um, look, I think what happened as you look back on this period, uh, there were some people who saw this. Uh, absolutely, there were some of them, but they were crying into the wild to some degree um, because they were a minority. And what was happening really was you had an enormous buildup of liquidity in the world. And we can talk about the so-called savings glut around the world, these enormous savings rates that existed particularly not in the U.S. at all, but particularly in developing countries really as an outgrowth of the Asia crisis. They all realized that they had to save because they didn't want to get back. They didn't want to find themselves in that position again. You had enormous savings rates in, you had in China and so forth. And all this liquidity was looking for a home. And you match that up against the fact that, as I showed you, I think very clearly on the corporate side, you had, almost, you, had a, you had a decreasing sense of risk. You had almost no defaults. You had a declining rate of defaults. And so people came to perceive that there was not much risk. And on top of that, you had the rating agencies who got seduced into believing this. And so they were rating all kinds of paper, AA and AAA, that in retrospect, anyone could look at and sort of and say to themselves, well, what were they thinking? How could they be thinking that? And so you, you really just had um, a bit of the old-fashioned too much money chasing too few goods. You had just an enormous amount of money that was looking for a home. You had uh, interest rates declining uh, throughout this period in a, lot, in a lot of parts of the world, and therefore people searching for yield and looking for yield, and just a, a, a sense of complacency and a false sense of confidence that uh, mistakes couldn't be made and that these investments would prove sound. But some of the biggest losers have been some institutions that you might regard as among the most sophisticated. So even the people spinning these stories believed them. Uh, that's true. And, you know, one of the many ironies uh, of this whole situation is that uh, people have been talking about the hedge funds, the hedge funds, the hedge funds, and we also operate hedge funds uh, and wringing their hands about, you know, the, the, hedge, the black hole of hedge funds. Well, the irony is that the parts of the financial system that are most closely regulated and monitored were the ones where the losses occurred. And the so-called hedge funds that everybody was worrying about actually did very well. Now, you know, there were one or two blow-ups. They were very much the exception rather than the rule. And on balance, hedge funds actually navigated this period very well. And so you're right. The, the people who were supposed to know better um, didn't know better. Well, now, when people start to talk then about the, the consequences, um, there's now quite an industry of apocalyptic 
uh, forecasts and um, people drawing all kinds of, of lessons. And if we can perhaps uh, cut off some of the extremes of this debate as not perhaps being worth a lot of time. But there are some arguments uh, in the middle which uh, seem to have some uh, credibility and, and achieve some resonance. One being um, that the whole originate-to-distribute model um, in the markets has, is time-expired, that actually this is just um, not a sensible way of managing credit because people who used to monitor credit and monitor the condition of companies have no interest in them. And if you take the extreme model of the subprime market, the broker who does the original deal may just be a broking firm set up in order to market a particular tract of housing, and then they've got it rid of it to the lender uh, who barely has it on their books before they've securitized it, and that's been done by an investment bank who then slice and dice it into different tranches, and who then sell it on to other investors. And there's a very long chain, and nobody then is particularly interested in what's going on on the underlying credit. And the, the distance between the person who holds the credit and the originator of it is so large that this market, the market disciplines in it don't operate, however regulated the institutions are. As we all know, market disciplines really are crucial, and they don't operate. Now, do you share that kind of analysis, that there is something gone fundamentally wrong with the originator-distribute model? I think there's certainly things to talk about in that area. Um, first, I think you have to distinguish a little bit between the, the buyer being a consumer versus being an institution. And it's very clear, I actually am not critical of, uh, for the most part, of Alan Greenspan's tenure at the Fed. We can talk about that. The one place where I would be a critical was his whole Ayn Rand, let the market work, we don't need regulation uh, kind of approach. And uh, when you talk about people who were warning, one of his governors, uh, Ed Gramlich, who tragically died, was warning throughout this period about predatory lending, about a lot of exactly these kinds of issues. And uh, neither Chairman Greenspan nor anyone else really chose to do much about it. I think we now know that the consumer needs some protection, that it is that just as we have in America all sorts of rules about usury and about disclosure of credit card, on credit cards and things like that, we, we really did drop the ball uh, with respect to the, the home mortgage side. I think with respect to um, both the buyers of this paper and with respect to the corporate side of it, the institutional side of it, I think it's more complicated because if you take, for example, what went on in the high-yield world, yes, there's a securitization process that certainly uh, probably abetted, aided and abetted some of what happened. But we've had these cycles before. Uh, we had one just a few years before in the, in the early 2000 period, as I described, and you're dealing um, with, you know, theoretically sophisticated borrowers, sophisticated lenders uh, who are supposed to know how to analyze credit, know how to measure risk. And I don't think the securitization process per se played that much of a role in what happened there. I think it was more this, this absence of defaults, this sense of confidence that we can't make a mistake, we can buy more of this paper combined with this huge amount of uh, liquidity that's out there. So I, I do think your question is a good one, and I do think as we look ahead, uh, it should be asked as to whether this disconnect in certain markets of one end of the, of the pipeline from the other should um, result in some change in the system. But it's not obvious to me what the changes would be. For example, some people have suggested that you require the banks that securitize to keep more of it themselves so that they're eating their own cooking, so to speak. Well, as you pointed out, they did. And, you know, it didn't stop them from 
uh, securitizing a lot of stuff that shouldn't have been securitized. So I'm not sure that's a perfect solution. I think this whole question of the scale and size of our financial markets, you know, there's over $40 trillion of credit default swaps, which are basically insurance against default that are outstanding. And there are counterparties to each of them. And theoretically, people who participate in that market are hedging and are hedged. But we don't really know that. And the magnitude of the potential exposures is vast. But what do you do about it? Do you say, well, we can't have more than 20 trillion? So the first 20 trillion is allowed, but after that you can't have any more? Uh, I'm not sure anyone really has proposed things that I think are going to be terribly constructive uh, other than simply letting nature take its course. People learn their lesson for maybe a decade, and then we'll have some other set of problems. What about leverage ratio? I mean, the investment banks typically leveraged about 30 to 35 times. Do you think that's sustainable in the future? Well, I think the investment banks uh, – I, I think one of the things we've learned in the U.S. is that our regulatory apparatus is completely outmoded and needs dramatic overhaul. And what, again, when you talk about things that should have been obvious that people didn't see, I don't think people realize the extent to which investment banks – the so-called investment banks and the so-called commercial banks had become one and the same. And so you had a set of commercial banks – that had the opportunity to borrow from the Federal Reserve in times of distress from the so-called discount window. And in return for that, they were regulated and monitored, and they had capital ratio requirements, and they had all of that. And for the most part, that has worked. We haven't had uh, – we've had write-downs, but we haven't had uh, tragedies among the so-called commercial banks. What I don't think people fully understood or appreciated was the extent to which the investment banks, like Bear Stearns, had become so integral into the – financial system as counterparties on one side or another of these trillions of dollars of transactions that we couldn't afford to let them fail, and we can talk about that a bit, but we had no controls over them. We had no real regulation. You know, the five big investment banks uh, are regulated by the SEC, which is not really a regulator in the sense of a financial regulator. They're really a uh, a disclosure and and, and legal type of regulator. And so there was a huge gap in the regulatory system, and uh, Secretary Paulson said yesterday, and I think all of us would agree, it's got to be dramatically changed. What the right leverage ratios are, I think we can debate, but certainly there needs to be be much greater greater regulation. Before we just uh, pursue that point, just just one other uh, point about these with the diagnosis. Um, One is just a simple issue of complexity in that one of the arguments that has been advanced is that uh, a reason for the credit markets gumming up in the dramatic way that has happened, I mean not every day but I mean they are much uh, more sticky than they used to be and there have been points where they've been completely closed and one of the reasons advanced which I think is probably correct is that the markets were extremely nervous about where these losses lay they just couldn't, so it was a kind of find the lady, you knew that there was something very nasty under one of these cups but you didn't know which one so you weren't interested in turning over any of them or lending to any of them Um, Do you think that there is a sense in which these instruments have just become so complex that the dynamics of them in different circumstances um, have not been understood even by the people engaged in creating them Um, and that we've just got to a point where we're creating complexity which has gone beyond the rationale for these instruments. I mean, the ultimate rationale, as I, as I understand it, is you know that if you can parcel up risk into its different components, then it can be borne by the people best able to bear that risk, which in itself should be stabilizing for financial markets. Martin Wolf has said it's not borne by the people who are most 
able to bear it, it's borne by the people who are least able to understand it. Um, <laughs> do you think that's a fair criticism, and have we just, has this just become too complicated? Um, it may well have become too complicated. Uh, look, I, I, think, I think there is this fear, and I think it's a really legitimate fear, that the financial system could unwind simply out of fear of the unknown, that people become afraid to deal with Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan because they just don't know what is on the other side of that. And, and because many of these transactions involve counterparty and your reliance on the person on the other side to be able to make good, it's merely the fear that they can't make good um, would be, could be unnerving and destabilizing to the markets. But I would also submit, I would submit a couple of things. First, if Goldman Sachs published its entire list of positions, everything it owned, I'm not sure that probably anything other than the top 1% of a sophisticated investor would be able to make head or tail of it. So uh, I think you're dealing with complexity that, you know, even transparency isn't going to completely solve the problem because I don't think most investors would know what to make of it. Um, and I think it is a real problem, but I don't quite know, again, it's in the category of problems I don't quite know what to do about because I don't think you want to, uh, outlaw derivatives or you want to outlaw securitizations because as a re for the reason you said, you know, they have done, they have played a very positive role in many ways. And let me give you one example. As bad as things, and this is maybe not an example that people will find cheery or, or, or supportive in a way, but look, as bad as things have been for the, for the U.S. banks because of their own foolishness and bad judgments, it's been much less worse than it could have been because we managed to export a lot of this risk all around the world. Um, uh, it's maybe our biggest export now is risk. Um, but if you go back to the late 80s, when we had our famous SNL crisis, you know, there were over 1,500 savings and loans that went out of business in the U.S. It cost the government $250 billion of those dollars, which were a lot more valuable than today's dollars, to clean it up and to take all that, the Resolution Trust Corporation, take all that stuff onto its own balance sheet and deal with it because they, they couldn't spread the risk. They, you know, those SNLs made those loans, same situation, uh, a booming housing market, they didn't think anything would go, go bad. They made these crazy loans, and they were theirs. Uh, they weren't anybody else's. So, so you know, is it bad that, that the German regional banks have lost a lot of money and, um, and those towns in Norway lost a lot of money buying our subprime paper? Yeah, it's terrible, and I'm, I'm not making a joke of it. I think it's, it's unfortunate, but it did manage to spread the risk in a way that while our banks have had to go re-equitize and rebuild their capital, they're still standing. And mm -hmm. so I think you have to look at it you know, from, both, uh, from both dimensions. I also believe, and again, I don't want to be too overly optimistic, I believe the market is, goes through cycles, but it's to some degree self-calibrating. So a lot of these lessons have now been learned, and it's going to be a good while before some of what happened, absent any change in regula regulation or anything, it's going to be a good while before m many of the of things that happened are going to happen uh, again because people will have learned their lesson for a while. Well, I'm, I'm going to open it to uh, the audience in just one moment, but I, let me just ask you one more question, um, and that is you stayed in your analysis um, resolutely on the western side of the Atlantic. I mean, this was a U.S. Uh, analysis, but you're over here now. Uh, you've been to see the governor. Um, what are you telling him? I mean, the big issue, of course, is decoupling. You know, is it possible for the U.S.? to be, or the rest of the world's economy, to be decoupled from what's going on in the U.S. As you point out, you exported some of these instruments, and the U.S., you know, is a very, as we know, Americans are very, very generous people and have typically exported their recessions uh, free, of, <laughs> free of charge to the rest of the world in the past. Um, is that what you expect to happen over here? Well, first of all, I don't think the governor was all that interested in what I had to say, um, but I was certainly interested in what he did. Um, 
I, look, I, I, I don't believe in decoupling as a principle for the reasons you say. Uh, and I, I think in every cycle there's a so-called new paradigm. And once in a while there really is a new paradigm, but I would say four times out of five, they turn out to be the same old paradigms. And I simply uh, I, I don't believe um, that our going into recession is going to uh, be isolated from the rest of the world. Um, we have a massive current account deficit that we are going to have to deal with. And as I mentioned uh, the fall in the dollar is helping to do that. And so obviously, uh, as our, we become more competitive from an export point of view, as we import less because our own means are less and, our, and therefore we can't consume as much, it has ripple effects uh, throughout the world, different ones probably in this part of the world than in the emerging markets in China and places like that, which are so heavily export-driven. Um, so there's absolutely no question in my mind that there's some linkage. Is it as strong as it used to be? Is it automatic that we'll have a recession so you'll have a recession? Um, not necessarily, but I would also observe that some of the same phenomena, many of the same phenomena that existed in the U.S. existed here in Europe broadly. Um, the house price escalation existed here. The, one of the differences is you didn't have, uh, happily for you, quite the robust uh, mortgage market and the ability to overleverage that we created for our uh, citizens, so you, won't, you don't have that aspect of it. But the downturn in house prices and the necessary correction probably to bring them in line with incomes is, I think, close to as great as what we had have faced. And so um, there are a lot of the same issues. And, and of course, I think Europe does have more of an, of an embedded inflationary problem than we do and a less, somewhat less flexible set of economies. And so that gives the ECB less room for maneuvering when things get slow. And so uh, I think there are a set of issues that Europe faces as well. And some of them are doing and some of them are, are being part of the party, so to speak. So if we do face the same issues and if you've praised the Fed for the rapidity and the scale of their response. You presumably think the Bank of England hasn't done enough. Well, I think, that, first of all, I, I don't think the scale of the problems here, I shouldn't be talking about the UK economy because I really know almost nothing about it. But um, well, see, we talk all the time about things we know very little about. So this is just a But the difference is that I can talk about the US and most of these people won't know if I know anything <laughs> about it. And here they'll actually know. Um, I, I, look, I think uh, I can't comment on sort of little details of their monetary policy. I do think that... Um, the economy here is stronger uh, than it is in the U.S., clearly. It's decelerating, but it's still stronger. You told me before we came out here that you haven't had a negative quarter of GDP growth since 1992, I think you said. And, and, uh, and clearly, I think, while decelerating, GDP growth is still positive here. And I do think the inflationary pressures are a little bit stronger here than they are in the U.S. So I don't think um, the Bank of England either has quite the scope for maneuver nor the need to maneuver um, that we do. Remember that... The central, bank, the central bank, the Fed, is really trying to accomplish several different things at the same time in the U.S. They're trying to fight recession. They're also trying to provide liquidity to the credit markets and the capital markets to prevent the gears from completely freezing up. And uh, I do think that uh, the ECB, and I would say you know, slightly belatedly the Bank of England, have provided that liquidity. And I think that was very important to do, for them to do because we did export so much of our risk here that they needed to provide that liquidity. But I don't think uh, the U.K., faces quite the same uh, downdraft on the fundamental economic conditions that we do, and therefore I don't see quite that urgency. Fine. Let me open it now to, uh, to the floor. Uh, yes, woman in the black uh, shirt, if you could give your name and where you are, particularly if you come from a company in, which is owned by Quadrangle, you might <laughs> like to. <laughs> My name is Ellen Reinders, and I work for Lois TSP. For, uh, I'm Lois. sorry? Lois TSP. Ah, sorry. Uh, People who didn't buy Northern Rock. <laughs> My question is about the next bubble. Um, we have a technology bubble in South and now the, the housing crisis in America. 
The next babu will that be the Hobart Valuation Town? Will that be the Chinese economy? What would you advise as the next babu? If I knew that, I would, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to be doing this anymore. I'd be retired somewhere. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think, I don't think the the dollar is undervalued, which is sort of the implication of saying, asking if the pound is overvalued, and by implication whether the euro is overvalued or whatever. Um, we do have a massive current account deficit. It is shrinking, uh, but it's still close to the record uh, percent of GDP that it hit last year. Uh, there is a lag effect in that working, and so um, it's possible that we could overshoot. Um, but it's very hard to argue, and, and there are people who do it, but it's very hard for me to accept the argument that the dollar uh, is undervalued at this moment in time. So I don't think, uh, conversely, therefore, that the pound or the euro are necessarily a bubble in the other direction. Um, I, would have, I would have said that, and I don't think a bubble in the sense that it disappears and it's not real and it all evaporates the way the dot-coms did, but I would say I would have said uh, certainly a couple of months ago that the, over, that the valuations in India and China and in some of the other sort of most favored, most beloved, darling emerging markets was uh, the biggest bubble. Um, there has been a pretty significant correction in those markets, probably not all there needs to be, but at least some recognition that the valuations in those markets had really um, gotten beyond anything that made sense. So that, that probably would have been my candidate for um, the biggest. That's okay. Thanks. Uh, it, it, there's a hand right in the middle of the third row. Yeah, I'm, the man with specs. Yeah, there's a, a microphone on its way to you from the, your right. That's it. Yeah, I'm Jeremiah, the prophet of gloom, but I'm also Bernard Casey from the University of Warwick. Um, I was taken uh, by your suggestion, your final slide, that policymaking was much more sophisticated and therefore we didn't need to worry. But once you actually started answering questions, you started talking about um, complacency, false confidence, too many people chasing two things, um, people choosing not to do anything, um, lack of uh, adequate regulatory systems, which didn't sound like we've got a particularly sophisticated policy-making structure that was actually going to get us um, out of whatever we might find ourselves in. In terms of the bit of the sophisticated policy-making structure I wanted to concentrate on, it is the one about consumers needing more protection, outmoded regulatory processes, and gaps in the system there. Howard Davis did ask you whether there are any lessons for the UK. I mean, I, I would like you to try and talk a little about it, and particularly about regulatory systems. Two days ago, we had a... Um, somewhat a damning report upon our financial services authority and that was regulating and some of those things which happened here happened sort of before some of the things even happened in America, though after some of the things happened in Germany, I was always pleased. Um, well, thank you um, for pointing out that seeming but incorrect inconsistency in my um, comments, um, but I, I, do, I, do, it, it, I can see why you thought that, but so let me make that dis first distinction. Um, the, the more sophisticated economic uh, policymaking that I, was, I should have been clear about, I really was talking about on the macroeconomic side, that when you look at monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, and sort of very broad concepts of deregulation and the role of government uh, in the economy, I do think uh, that we in the U.S. as well as the U.K. and many, many other developed countries have made enormous progress over the 
last several decades. I mean, I was a reporter for the New York Times in the late 70s covering economic policy when we had wage and price controls and, and, uh, and interest rates went to 21% and, and short-lived Federal Reserve governors and all manner of chaos. And I really do think we've made enormous progress on that, and I do think this so-called great moderation is real. But, where I would, and, but I would draw that distinction and absolutely agree with you that when it comes to uh, financial services regulation in particular, in the U.S. in particular, I don't think anybody would be proud or should be proud of what our record is. I mentioned one example of the Federal Reserve, I think, not doing its job. I would also men- I mentioned another, which is that we had these so-called investment banks that we didn't realize had become commercial banks and were outside of the Fed's regulatory umbrella and availability of capital. And the whole reason the Fed was created was to prevent a run on the bank of precisely the type that occurred at Bear Stearns, but Bear Stearns was outside of the system uh, at that point. Um, and also, I would certainly concede that we had this, we have uh, to this moment this crazy patchwork of regulatory agencies that oversee our financial institutions, um, three or four of them, the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and the control of the currency, plus we have all the states in America that have a role in regulating certain kinds of institutions somewhat randomly, whether they happen to be state chartered or federally chartered. And, I, and so I, I would give us bad marks for really seeing all that. The, the the other thing I worry about, and this does swing back a bit to the UK, is um, I worry about the fact that these capital markets have become global. And there has been a much debated or much discussed, at least until recently, idea that New York was losing out to London because the UK had the so-called principles-based regulatory system, whereas we had a much more rules-based regulatory system. First of all, I'm not sure principle-based regulation would work in America where everybody's always trying to find a loophole or a way through something. Uh, in any event, but, but what, it, what worries me more about it is that I perceive in that whole di- dialogue, and Howard is certainly very well equipped to comment on this himself, but I perceive in that whole dialogue a bit of a race to the bottom, that London, New York, and many, many other places in the world all wanted, wanted to be the recipients of all of these jobs, all of this growth. Uh, I was out in Canary Wharf today, and you know, it's just obviously amazing uh, what's gone on there since I was last there, which was many years ago. And so I think quite candidly, I think, a num- I think London... Um, did hold itself out as a more benign environment for these firms to operate in. And I think, but for what's just happened in America, I think we were headed down a path of of basically trying to undercut London and offer a still more benign regulatory environment because uh, many of the uh, banks and investment banks in New York were were saying we're going to lose, we we can't be, we're not competitive, we're going to move offshore. There were a lot of statistics about IPOs and how the number of IPOs that had left the U.S. uh, soil for other more hospitable climes. And so I believe, and this is another tough problem, but I believe uh, capital is global today, and capital can move anywhere it finds a home. And I believe we're going to have to find an, a more international framework of regulation, not just fix what, what's wrong in the U.S. or fix what's wrong with the FSA. We're going to have to find an international solution. That's going to be very tough because all these countries are going to – it's like protectionism. All these countries are going to be very territorial about their jobs and about trying to be able to attract more jobs, and it's going to be a very tough uh, but I think very, very necessary uh, discussion. Thanks. Uh, Yeah, the second row, Jan. Thank you. My name is Jan. Um, I'm still very much puzzled by the events of last week when in uh, seven days we had Bernstein's (coughs) – apologies – we had Bernstein, JPM, and then reportings by Lehman, Goldman, and Morgan Stanley. Um, And I guess what puzzles me the most is that we had a massive crisis on Tuesday, I think, when – or Monday, actually, when the price of uh, Lehman plummeted to – uh, I think 16 or 17 dollars. 
And uh, even employees of Goldman Sachs were quite worried about the, the write-downs. Everyone was talking about 3, 4 billion, 5 billion. Lehman was on, on the edge of being insolvent. Um, and Bernstein's collapsed just the day before. And then suddenly, all of a sudden, Goldman reported just 1.8. Lehman had good, good numbers. Morgan Stanley had good numbers. Um, and the question I want to ask is, how much confidence do you actually have in those numbers, given that uh, plenty of these securities uh, need to be valued very much by subjecti subjectively? And it's a very much a question of how optimistic the management of the company is in terms of uh, valuing the exotic uh, subprime or high securities. Because what would, happen to, uh, what would seem to be happening almost is that if Fed is uh, spending the whole weekend by fixing Bershtans and then they have massive problem, this would almost seem like a conspiracy where the government is being somehow more lenient towards the big companies when they value more positively in the, in the week when the markets are extremely stressed and everyone is worried. So that they can then report more of the losses in the uh, second quarter, perhaps, or third quarter, and therefore somehow reduce the systematic risk. Because if you look at a portfolio, just the last one point, if you look at a mortgage portfolio on a, on a global basis, um, there is a striking difference between what percentage of the whole credit holdings are being written down at, say, the likes of uh, UBS and Bernstein's compared to Lehman. I think if you look at it, Bernstein's has written down about uh, 18 or 19 percent, and Lehman in about 2 percent. Now, there can be some differences in what these banks have on the balance sheet, but if everything in the market is going down with correlation between 0.9 and 1, then there can't be such a striking difference in terms of how much you need to write down. So do you believe there can be some sort of uh, um, events happening behind the scenes to just calm the markets down and then put the bad news out in April or May? Thank you. Um, let, me, let me try to remember the different pieces of your question. First, first of all, uh, that was a good question. I'm, I'm being serious. I just, um, if I forget, you'll add it. I think there are several different things that work there in, in, this, in this situation. First, what happened at Bear Stearns was really two factors. One was a classic run on the bank. Uh, people simply decided they didn't want to do business. They were scared to do business with Bear Stearns. They were afraid that if they lent them some securities, um, they wouldn't be able to get the money back or get the securities back. It was all kinds of fear, some of it rational, some of it irrational, about doing business with Bear Stearns. And, you know, there's a saying in America that nobody ever got fired for buying IBM, and it was sort of the opposite of that. I mean, nobody ever got fired for dealing with a bank that didn't have any problems. And so their customers were fleeing rapidly, and it was just a, it was a classic run on the bank. And as I indicated earlier, unlike um, Citibank, which would have had the ability to go to the Federal Reserve and get liquidity. You know, you know, I don't know if the movie It's a Wonderful Life is popular here where they have a run on the bank and at 4 o'clock they close the doors with $10 left in the till. That was really where Bear, what Bear Stearns was facing. Um, and they didn't have any place to go. And I, I believe that when the dust settles on Bear Stearns, I believe it will turn out to be true that there was positive equity value in the firm. And that's what the market obviously believes because J.P. Morgan stock went up a lot and it even stayed up even after they paid more money uh, for the shares. Um, and I just, I, I, now having said that, I think that Bear Stearns operated with more leverage, closer to the edge than it, the other institutions that it was competing with. And I think that proved to be a uh, ill-advised uh, strategy. The second thing I would say is that I will be very surprised, and I'm willing to say in front of all of you, and you can call me up if I'm wrong, I will be very surprised if out of all of this, anyone discovers any Enron type of activities. I, I may be being naive, but I believe that for the most part, and I'll put one asterisk on it, that for the most part, these uh, CEOs and these companies were trying to value this as best they could. But, you know, they were trying to hit a moving target. You're trying to value securities that are innately hard to value under the best of circumstances. But the value of what underpins them, i.e. housing in many cases, is declining at rates that we don't really know. 
and where there's no real market for this paper, and where you're even more, you're valuing a lot of it off of derivative indexes, which don't reflect the underlying values because they were put in place as a hedging mechanism, not to really provide any kind of guidance as to what the real value of the paper was. And so it was a really, really tough uh, job to value this stuff. And and so two more points. One, I think one of the things we've learned about Wall Street in this is that management matters. I don't believe that it's a coincidence that J.P. Morgan has come through this in a stronger shape as it has. I don't believe it's a coincidence that Goldman Sachs has come through this, relatively speaking, in a stronger shape uh, as it has. Uh, I don't believe it's a coincidence that some other firms have had truly massive write-downs. I think there is a, uh, I think there is a lot to be said for focus management, good, good risk controls, and so forth. Um, and then the last comment I would make is that uh, I do think, though, that while I believe the accounting is, represents a real best effort to be correct, it's also true that at some of these banks where you've had management changes, there is, it is in the interest of the new management to load as much as you can backwards to start with as clean a slate as you can. And accounting is as much art as science, even when done very honestly and, and, uh, and uh, carefully. And so I think there are some differences in objectives there. But for the most part, I think the reason for these different outcomes is management, the difficulty of valuing the stuff, and the difficulty of hitting a moving target. On, the, on Bear Stearns, just to pursue sure. one aspect of that, are you worried about how far involved the Fed got? I mean, it, it seems to me to be one thing to open the discount window to a different range of institutions, accept a broader range of collateral to provide liquidity that operates in a, in a market, in a, in a not in a way the same for everybody it's not anti-competitive for the Fed to engineer it would seem over a weekend a deal which gets a particular bank another one for two bucks a share which it then says a week or so later after a bit of squealing well maybe we meant ten uh, who knows where that will end I mean why was there not if this was public policy and public money backing this deal which it clearly was because they have guaranteed 30 billion dollars of their uh, uh, lines to them, you know, wh- wh- why would the Fed not hold an auction for this? Has the Fed not put itself in a very vulnerable position, having favored one institution over others who might have been interested in buying that? That's a good question, um, and I think it's an important question. Um, first of all, I am as big a believer in moral hazard as anybody. I believe I am anyway. I, I, I do worry a lot about moral hazard issues. And with their that's, just not, that's not just because you've been seeing Mervyn King, is it? <laughs> well, he's, I think he's maybe changed his view a little bit. But um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, you know, I, think there's a lot, I think there is a lot to be said for it. I, this one doesn't cross the line for me, and it doesn't for the following reason. First, because whether it's $2 or $10, and I'll get to that in a second, the shareholders of Bear Stearns lost the vast preponderance of their value. So it is not as if public money were used to reward a group of shareholders. Secondly, uh, around a third of the shares of Bear Stearns were held by employees and directors. And it's not, so therefore, uh, it's not as if they were being rewarded. Bear Stearns actually, more than most firms, had a policy of requiring or encouraging strongly uh, senior people to keep their money in the firm in the form of shares. And so they lost unbelievable amounts of money. And so I don't think they're going to feel, oh, yeah, the Fed bailed us out. We can go do this again. I don't think they're going to come away thinking that that's an option for them. Um, thirdly, there was an auction. It just happened over about an 18 or 24-hour period because there was a decision made that in the global world we live in, and this gets this whole globalization point, maybe it's a little more than 18 hours, but from the time the markets closed on Friday, they made a decision that they could not allow Asia to open at 6 o'clock p.m. Sunday New York time 
where Bear Stearns would be out of business. And therefore, it was a very short auction. There were a few other people sniffing around. As fate would have it, J.P. Morgan was the only, is really the only uh, institution almost capable of doing this, at least in America, because the other banks all had their set of problems. You needed a big balance sheet because you had to take on Bear Stearns' obligations. And Jamie Dimon's a really smart guy, and he got himself a bargain. And the Fed did say, we don't want you to pay a lot for this because we have to have a moral hazard. We, these shareholders have to lose money. So what, then what happened? Why did it go from $2 to $10? for two reasons, in my opinion. First, because, and I don't know if this was a mistake or not, but there was one little provision, you know, it's been reported as a mistake, but I don't know for sure, that J.P. Morgan, as part of the deal, agreed to guarantee all of Bear Stearns' obligations for a year, regardless of whether they closed or not. And so that actually set up the shareholders of Bear Stearns to do something they otherwise couldn't have done, which is to go shop for a better deal and to vote this deal down at the shareholders' meeting and then see what else they could get. And so that put a lot of pressure on J.P. Morgan to raise their price. And the second thing that happened um, was that because a lot, so much of this money was lost by people who J.P. Morgan wanted to retain, they felt they had to do something to earn some goodwill. There had been a particularly ugly meeting between the chairman of J.P. Morgan and the staff earlier in the week, and they just felt they had to do something to keep the business together so that they actually would get some value um, for their money. So I think these are tough calls, but we have had in America periodically, uh, and you had it here with Northern Rock ultimately, a concept of too big to fail. We had it with Continental Illinois in 84. We've had it with Chrysler, with Lockheed, with a few companies over the years. And I think we've generally done pretty well at balancing the considerations. Well, no doubt Congress will pursue that point. Yep, here. Uh, third row, fifth row from the back. Thank you. Um, my name is Richard. I'm a graduate of the school. I've greatly enjoyed listening to you. Um, can we move it back to housing? Because um, I think the discount window opening and the systemic... Uh, underwriting is very important but ultimately housing has to be the issue do you think we get an RTC type reaction, what do you think is the most likely reaction from the US government and its agencies in underwriting the housing situation I'm I'm glad you asked that question because I actually um, just wrote something about that yesterday Um, and it's very much on my mind because I I think we have an unsustainable political situation in the U.S. at the moment. Um, We have at least two million Americans facing foreclosure, possible eviction from their home, and who knows what behind that. And I don't think our, and and I don't think our political system really will allow that to uh, go unattended to. We have an administration, and this is not intended as a political uh, comment, which is very free market uh, oriented and and also, in fairness to this administration, the solutions are very challenging to figure out what they would exactly be. Uh, that has resisted doing much, frankly. I mean, there's some stuff, a few things have happened, but very little. And so the result of that is an increasing and growing amount of political pressure to do something about housing. Um, my own view is, as I showed in that chart, that you know, King Canute couldn't hold back the sea. I don't think we can hold back home prices or push them back to where they were or even hold them back from declining. I think eventually they have to get in line with incomes. Hopefully incomes will rise, but they have to meet somewhere along the way. And so I think policies that are designed to, quote, prop up house prices would be misguided. I think policies designed out of a thought that if we fix housing, it will fix the whole rest of the economy are misguided. We have obviously other economic issues like the corporate loan market that I showed you. But where I do think we have to do something is with regard to these uh, looming foreclosures. And uh, this is a whole another 45-minute discussion, which we obviously don't have time for. I don't have a perfect solution. I know a number of the solutions that are out there, having the government buy mortgages, recreating an RTC to buy these mortgages and things like that, 
are probably bad ideas, and I can explain why. Um, but I think what we have to do is create a set of incentives for the people who service these mortgages. And again, to Howard's comment before, these are very disconnected now from the people who actually have lent the money. We have to provide an incentive for these people to restructure loans into packages that people can afford and stay in their houses rather than foreclose and kick them out because the social costs, the economic costs of foreclosure are just so enormous. And that's where I would, if I were in charge, that's where I would be focusing my energy on that particular, you know, perhaps seemingly narrow, but I think really critical piece of the puzzle. And I think, I think um, John McCain may not have been artful the other day, and he may not have been politically correct, but when he said, look, I don't want to bail out lenders, and I don't want to bail out borrowers who should have known better, he wasn't completely wrong either. Another one, a uh, woman there, sort of three rows from the back, with her hand rather firmly in the air now. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Ponytail, that's it. Hello. Um, so basically two questions. Since investors give fuel to the economy, where they should be looking at to invest in capital markets or CDO or other structured products? And what will be the future products to attract them? Thank you. Um, well, first of all, you know, one of the things, and I'm not, uh, and, you know, I'm not a, a great forecaster of the stock market, so no one should act on what I say, but, you know, the numbers are what they are, and uh, I, I do think that when you look at our equity market, and this is also what I hear from people who I actually do think know something about the stock market, I do think when you look at our equity market as a whole, it is, um, it is certainly not overvalued, and it may, over the long run anyway, uh, be an attractive investment opportunity. All the metrics that I, you know, the ones I showed you and others appear to be quite reasonable valuations, and I think you invest for the long term and be prepared for cycles along the way. The second thing that, I, again, I, people who I trust and respect believe fervently, but I honestly myself couldn't know if they're right or not, is that uh, just as markets often overreact, out of all of this housing wreckage and all of this paper that's out there, that a lot of this paper is attractive at the moment and that the implicit um, foreclosure rates inside a lot of these securitized products, in other words, what would ha how bad housing would have to get to lose money buying some of the securitized paper at today's prices, a lot of smart people think it's pretty attractive stuff. I can't understand it. You know, I don't invest in things I can't understand, and so I wouldn't myself buy it, and I wouldn't advise you to try it at home. But, um, but, uh, but I think every market correction of this sort has inevitably involved a degree of overreaction, and the people who have found that point of overreaction have done well, and I believe we'll have that come out of this as well. Can we take a couple more and then before sure, we wind up? Yeah, one uh, there. My credit cards still work. Um, <laughs> well, that's Visa's problem. Um, uh, my credit, I, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> um, I, I think it is, it is certainly, 
something we can worry, can and should worry about. It's a good question. Um, as I showed you, the asset-backed commercial paper market, which is what funds a lot of this stuff, has, has certainly dried up, um, and credit is very, very tight. And But up to a point, just to get to be a little bit devil's advocate and take the other side, up to a point, that's probably a good thing. Um, because I think in the UK, I just read this the other day, in fact, your use of credit cards here is even more abusive than our use in the United States. You have an even bigger problem of too much household debt than we do. Um, our household savings rate is zero, roughly. Maybe it's 1%, but it's right around zero. That was okay when house prices were going up because you, in effect, say that isn't counted as, as savings, and that, but it adds to household wealth, so that's okay. But house prices are going down, which means you have negative savings from your house, and if you're not saving elsewhere, you've really got a problem. And so I think up to a point, uh, I think uh, I, up to a point, I think having less credit available to, as you call the non-bank sector, um, is a good thing because I think we I think we overdosed on on that kind of credit as well as we did on these other kinds of credit. I do believe, at least speaking for the U.S., that if the Fed perceives or as the Fed monitors all these kinds of things, if it perceives that credit is overly constrained, and it is something they worry about, and it is something that we should all worry about, not just in credit cards, it will keep providing liquidity and basically force those markets uh, to reopen. And I, you know, again, maybe I'm being too optimistic, but I think over time uh, they will reopen. But I think a bit less household debt at the moment is not a bad thing. I hear what you're saying, and this gets back to the Howard's question about moral hazard, and these are tough, tough judgment calls uh, that one has to make about when you let something fail and when you don't. And I, I believe in failure. I mean, I'm in a business where we could fail any day with uh, an investment that we make, and we should be able to fail, and nobody should bail us out. Um, I, I just think that you have to balance that against some greater interest, and I, I really don't believe that the example of Bear Stearns is going to cause any other bank to rush out and do something stupid thinking, well, I'll get what Bear Stearns got as if that were a good thing. That was not a good thing. Just in front, yeah. Um, my question just relates a little bit to that, a little bit to one of the questions earlier. You um, were discussing how affecting the system will kind of mend itself, markets mend themselves. But the thing we're looking at here, government's access to make that in America alone is something like $460 billion worth of losses, which will have to come out from the credit crisis. And so far, American students have only booked 120 billion. So they're kind of one third of the way through, um, maybe less. Now, at the moment, if the banks have been declaring um, very, very benign looking um, profits recently, and as you said yourself, if even a sophisticated investor was given the full list of gold holdings, only maybe 1% of them could work out what that actually meant. Maybe bank managers are in a very similar position. Even with access to the full holdings, the holdings are huge. Um, and they're very complex, and they involve derivatives and hedges, and maybe they're not actually able to work out what the losses are. But if we're looking at any sort of decent, significant loss beyond what's already been taken, then it makes sense that the banks, maybe the whole bank system has to recapitalize, which in layman's speak means massive dilution of the shareholders, possibly wiping out their shareholders. Certainly that's what happened in the savings and loans with their shareholders, and it's what happened in Japan, where they did, and uh, the banking sector fell more than 90%. So why, um, why do you think we're going to avoid that kind of cataclysmic scenario and just work, it, work its way out? Falling, in, falling policy interest rates will not get there through the real economy in the, in the capital uh, losses scenario, and the system will freeze up unless you nationalize the system. Um, 
Well, I, I agree with your the thrust, but maybe not with the conclusion. Um, I think there are ma many more losses to come. Um, whether it's 200 billion, 300 billion, or some other number, nobody knows, because again, it's a moving target, both on house prices and on the value of the corporate debt that these banks still hold massive amounts of. But I, I, but I would perhaps disagree a little bit about the math in the sense that uh, I would guess that the market capitalization of the U.S. financial sector even now is a couple trillion dollars. I don't, I'm just guessing, but some number like that. Let's just say it's two trillion dollars. And let's say there's another 300 billion of losses to come. You're talking about 15% of their equity value. Um, and what, the, what has really been happening is this re-equitization process where Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, they all, uh, Morgan Stanley, they go to China, they go to Dubai with their hat in their hand and they get re-equitized and the shareholders take dilution and they take their pain. And that's, you know, that's how capitalism works. And I don't think, uh, I don't think it, so where I would only disagree is I think that process could happen in a more orderly fashion than it happened with the SNLs. The SNLs, we had 1,600 SNLs, they just went bankrupt. There was no value, there was no nothing. Here we have a case where 15% perhaps of equity value may be lost. The bank should replenish that equity so they can do business again and lend again and, and we can have an expanding economy. But I think it's entirely possible that, that could happen in an orderly fashion. We'll take one more. A woman has been patient at the back with a sort of pink type. Is it, would you call that pink? Yes. <laughs> Just about. Uh, I'm a student, student uh, study economics at uh, Cambridge University. Uh, I come from Get all China. sorts of trash in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I come from... Uh, I come from China. Uh, during your talk, uh, you mentioned one, one of the reasons uh, for the financial market boom prior to credit uh, crunch uh, is the excess saving from emerging markets. Uh, in other words, emerging countries lend money to America. But today, uh, FT reported that South Korea was going to reduce its holdings of American treasures. Uh, if it becomes a trend, which means if the emerging markets stop lending money or reduce the scale, what's the implications for, uh, for American economy will it be? Thank you. That's a very good question. Look, we, we did, we have done, and this has really not much to do with the house, well, probably it all relates in a way, but look, we have, uh, amidst all the good things I said about our economic policy, we have done, we have run an unbelievably stupid economic policy in a couple of ways over the last certainly half dozen years, which is to say that we have had these massive fiscal uh, deficits and we have had this savings rate approaching zero. And so what it has meant is that we are essentially borrowing at its peak, I think, 700 billion a year from the Chinese, from the South Koreans, from people who were smart enough to save money and using it not for investment, which would be okay. We actually had a current account deficit even larger than what we have today back in the late 19th century when we borrowed lots of money from the UK to build railroads, but we used it for investment. We didn't go out and consume with it. This time around, we're using it to consume our lifestyle, and that was that increase in consumption that I showed you at the very beginning. So we've gone into hock. We've gone into debt to the rest of the world, and I think that's a, a terrible problem for us in the long term. I think the specific issue of, of when and if central banks or other holders of our treasury stop buying them, I think has two pieces to it. One is a sort of cataclysmic issue if one day they just wake up and say, we don't want this anymore and dump it all on the market. And you have, you know, again, a potential kind of meltdown. You know, I think that's a low probability scenario because they already hold so much. It's not in their interest to destroy the market. The other scenario is what you described, which is that they just buy less or they start to sell slowly. And what that's going to do is raise our cost of borrowing for treasuries and, uh, and, and cut into our lifestyle because we're going to have to pay that interest, and that's going to be our day of reckoning. And unfortunately, uh, I think we do face a day of, re day of reckoning 
the evidence as we sit here today is that that's not happening because when you look at the rates on the 10-year Treasury, on the 30-year Treasury, they are extraordinarily low considering what's going on in our economy and the Fed and all, all the other stuff we've been talking about. And so right now this does not appear to be happening, but we are going to face a day of reckoning, and it's, uh, it's not going to be great. Now, I'm going to have the right to the very last question. We can't really let uh, an American, particularly not one who is also interested in politics as well as economics, uh, go without asking you who's going to win the Democrat nomination <laughs> and who's going to win the election. You know, if I tell you that, somebody's going to kill me. Um, Possibly your wife. Yeah, yeah my, wife, <laughs> my wife, who is uh, an ardent Hillary Clinton supporter, and we're Hillary Clinton supporters. So I probably should duck that first part of it, if you don't mind. I, I'd love to answer it, but it's really bad. I, I actually do believe, notwithstanding the fact that I am partisan, um, I do believe, and again, you can go on in-trade if you don't like my uh, approach, and you'll see their odds. Um, I do believe... Um, that uh, the probability is he'll be a Democrat. And it's, it's not necessarily because of the individuals involved at the moment, but American politics, just like here, um, has a history of going in cycles and of getting tired with people who are in power. And no doubt Senator McCain will try to distance himself in a graceful way from a lot of what happened in the last seven years. But you have, and this is not intended as a partisan comment, you do have an administration that is the most unpopular administration we've had in um, uh, 30 years at least probably. And I just think it's going to be hard for him to completely uh, maneuver around that. And I just think you know, this whole, this whole uh, uh, atmosphere of change is so in the air in America. Uh, and I think uh, Senator Obama and, and Senator Clinton both represent more of that ultimately to the American people. And uh, so I would, I would bet you uh, a little, you know, I bet you a pound or something on, uh, on, there, being, <laughs> on there being a, uh, a Democrat in the White House a year from now, but I'm going to duck the first part. <laughs> Okay, thank you very much for... Uh... <laughs>